So have you ever been to a sporting event and you saw an angry fan shouting at one of the officials? Sorry, Bruce, I know, you've seen it firsthand. Or maybe you were the angry fan shouting at the officials. No confession here, it's all right. But, but you know, we've all seen that moment, right? I mean, where, where that person just can't handle that a, a call was missed or that a call was blown. I remember when I was in college, um, I saw a guy have a meltdown. I mean, just lost it, screaming, yelling, waving his hands, making serious threats to these officials. I mean, it was a complete meltdown. It was so bad that security had to come and ask the man to leave. He couldn't even stay. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. I had no idea that third and fourth grade girls softball could be so intense. It was crazy. That's a true story, and I was security. <laughs> I had to ask him to leave. We've all had that moment where we've seen someone just kind of lose it. I was watching a talk from a professional soccer official from England, and if you don't know much about professional soccer, their fans are intense, to say the least. In fact, I have a friend who has a friend who's actually started a ministry in another area of the world because of the level of violence that happens at soccer matches. He's, he's created an entire ministry just to work at soccer matches because of the type of violence connected. There's, there's a lot of passion. But this official in his talk, he said, I've learned not to take the mean, angry things that the fans say to me personally. Because I just, I don't take them personally anymore. And here's his reason why. He said, it's taken me a while to figure it out, but I realize the only reason they're being so mean and angry is at the end of the day, they just want their team to win. You know, they, they just want their team to win. Now, a few quick lessons from all that we've shared. First, if you get thrown out of a third and fourth grade girls softball game, we're probably not going to let you be a deacon or teach in the children's ministry, all right? We're just, you know, just take note of that. Probably not going to happen. Second, if you get arrested at a professional soccer match, just know we only use church bail money if you are arrested for not paying your parking tickets. That's it, you know, nothing else. So we won't come bail you if you get arrested at a soccer match. And third, let's all do everything we can to do our best to not take so many things personally. Unless, of course, it's, it's your pizza. As, as one philosopher said, any pizza is a personal pizza if you believe in yourself. I have no idea what that means, but it just makes me laugh, so I just thought I'd throw it in. Listen, at the end of the day, there is something we need to take personally, okay? There is something that we must take personally. In fact, if you don't take this personally, you will not find hope in life. Let me repeat that. If you do not take this one thing personally, you will not find, gain, or keep the hope that your soul wants the most. So, what is this thing we need to take personally? Well, let's find out. Lamentations chapter 3, we're going to begin with verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. This is a, a poem written, we believe, fairly confident by the prophet Jeremiah. It's reflecting on the destruction and devastation of Jerusalem around 586 B.C. 
The city was destroyed. The church sanctuary, the whole church campus was destroyed. The people had to flee to other countries as refugees. The nation completely fell apart. That's one of the reasons it's been said that this is the moment when the Israelites became the Jews instead of the Israelites because the nation was no more, so to speak, at least not as they knew it. Everything was gone. And now they were discovering that God is not defined by a place on a map. God is not defined by a denomination or a mission statement. God is not defined by a building. They were discovering firsthand that God is defined by himself and by his character. And one of the most beautiful aspects of the character of God is that unlike us, he always keeps his promises. Always keeps his promises every single time. God had been sending his message to the people for more than 40 years. He had been calling the people to come and to turn to him, but they wouldn't do it. They would not turn to God. They went to work, they went to school, they went to church, they were pretty religious, they were pretty patriotic, but they would not turn to God. They refused to acknowledge their sin. They refused to admit or confess their sin. They refused to repent of their sin or lament over their sin. They refused to turn to God. They just wouldn't do it. But now they were lamenting. Now they got it. They had lost everything because they refused to honor God, and now they were learning what it meant to turn to him. And note that the Lamentations is is not a book written about lost people who wouldn't turn to God. Lamentations is a, a book of poems written about why the church people wouldn't turn to God. Not, not the people outside the church, but the, but the church people. And here in this third poem in the book of Lamentations, the prophet is taking it personally. He's taking his sin personally. The one thing that you must take personally if you're going to find hope in this world, it is taking your sin personally. He's taking his sin personally. He's he's taking the sin of the entire nation personally. He's understanding that, that his suffering and the suffering of the people, the affliction that they are under, is a reflection of the kindness and the love of God. It's a reflection of the the mercy of God through justice, the mercy of God through judgment. And he is overwhelmed as he considers this. He's taking his sin personally. We need to take our sin personally. So, are you? Do you take your sin personally? Or is sin that thing that other people do? You know, is sin that thing that the, that the politicians do or the criminals do or, or those people in foreign countries do or those people in those other neighborhoods do? It's sin something that doesn't really involve you. It's, it's more something that someone else does. You know, part of our human nature seems to be that something is not real until it happens to us, right? We're experiencing that a lot of different ways in the world today. Something doesn't exist, something's not real until we're in the hospital, right? Until we're sick or, or until we lose our job or whatever it may be. And the same is true with sin. With sin, oftentimes what happens is we think that sin is not real unless we get caught, right? It's not really happening unless we get caught. Well, let me just let you know that that you're caught, okay? 
God sees everything. He, he knows everything. He has eyes to see every corner of the universe. So, so we're caught in sin. There's no way for us to run away from it. And the economy of the universe is that the wages of sin is death. That's, that's how it works. However, God in his mercy, God in his kindness... He takes the reality of the wages of sin and the eternal death connected to it, and he does something completely different. He makes a way for you to have life, a way for you not just to have casual life, but to have eternal life. Do you have that life? Do you have eternal life in Jesus? I didn't ask, do you go to church? Or if you're a good neighbor, or if you're a decent American, or if you work hard at your job, or, or anything like that. Do you have the eternal life that only comes from Jesus Christ? Have you believed and embraced the truth about Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came from heaven to earth, that he died as a substitute for your sin, that he absorbed the wrath of God for you, that he rose from the dead to guarantee eternal life for you. Have you believed in, in that truth about Jesus? Jesus died to rescue you from the wages of sin. Jesus died to, to change the math. Jesus died to make sure that you would not be separated from God forever. There is no greater terror in the universe than being separated from God forever. Jesus died to change your story. So, do you have that eternal life? It's been said that if a person refuses to acknowledge that they are a sinner, then that person cannot be saved. So, do you believe you're a sinner? And have you been truly saved? If not, we would plead for you to come to Christ. We would plead with you to, to find the hope that can only come through Jesus, to find rescue before the justice, the judgment, and the wrath that is to come. We plead with you to come to Jesus today. The prophet, he, he experienced this justice and judgment of God, not the final justice, not the, the final judgment, but, but the temporary judgment. He experienced it, and it overwhelmed him. Listen as he continues in verse 2. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light, Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. Ever felt like that? Ever felt like that no matter what is happening, it's just darkness around you? That you have one of those days or one of those weeks where everything seems to repeatedly be working against you? Did you have that day this week or, or th that week this week? We all know this experience. We all know what it means to, to feel like everything is constantly working against us. Everything is working not our way. He goes on to describe how the justice of God impacts his body and his emotions. And then in verse 8, he says this, Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. Ever felt like that? 
Ever felt like you're praying and praying and praying and nothing's happening? You feel like God is not listening to you? He's just not there? But the prophet goes on. He, he describes the, the justice and judgment of God like a lion attacking him, like somebody shooting an arrow at his heart, like somebody knocking his teeth out. And then in verse 17, he says this. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. I've had multiple conversations this week with people that feel like this, that feel like their their peace has been rejected. They don't know what happiness is, and their hope has perished. We've all been there, right? Whether from the consequences of our own personal sin or just the circumstances of life, we've all been in that moment where we felt there was no peace and no happiness and no strength and no hope. We've been there. We, we know the feeling. But here's what happens. In the middle of all of that, in the middle of, of him having a meltdown, in the middle of him being overwhelmed with his sin, overwhelmed with the suffering that he's experienced, overwhelmed with the devastation around him, in the middle of all of that, he does this one thing. He does something, and it's about to change his entire life and his entire outlook. And what does he do? Listen to verse 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. One of the most important things you can do when your life is falling apart, when you're afraid or when you're angry or whatever other emotion that you're having, one of the most important things you can do is to recall something, to remember something. And what is he about to recall? What is he remembering that's going to give him so much hope? Well, he's going to remember the character of God. He's going to remember who God is, And he's going to remember the character of who he is. Look, I I cannot explain all the things happening in the world right now. I can't. You know what? And, And neither can anybody on social media, no matter what they say. You can't. No one can. No one can explain what's happening in the world today. And no one has ever been able to explain what's happening in the world. Why? Well, Moses told the people that there are some things, some knowledge that belongs only with God. You don't get the the wrap-up. You don't get the memo. We don't get to understand everything that's happening in the universe. Some things belong only to God. Someone put it this way, full and final and complete explanations are God's business not ours. And that's good news. We may bristle. Hey, I want to know. I mean, that's why why I read the paper. That's why I watch the news. That's why I go to the the community forums held by politicians. That's why I go to church business meetings. I want to know. I want information. Give me, give me, give me. Let me tell you something. It's a really good thing that the full and final complete explanations are not with me and not with you. Because there is no president And there is no queen, and there is no doctor or physician or pastor or person that needs to be in charge of the universe. Why? Because on our best days, on your 
best day, you're still weak, you're still tired or, or frustrated or, or angry or selfish or confused or apathetic or a million other things. We don't need to be in charge. That would be danger. But God is good. And if God's in charge, his character can take care of, of everything. And here's why. God never sleeps. God never fails. God never forgets his promises. Spouses, how many promises you forgot this week? I promise I'll take out the trash. I, I promise I'll clean the kitchen. I, I promise I'll hang those clothes up. I promise I'll look at the car. How many promises have you failed or forgotten this week? How many promises have your politicians or your pastor or the people you work with or almost any other human being on the planet, how many promises have we forgotten or failed to honor this week? I'm going to guess all of us have about 100, okay? <laughs> We're not perfect, but God doesn't fail. He doesn't forget his promises and get this, he will not forsake his own. God doesn't forsake the people that call on his name. He won't forsake them. And because that's true, that means everything else in the world becomes different because of the character of God. See, if that is God's character, then we can trust him. We can trust him. But you know what? We are living in a time where we don't trust anybody. I mean, if we're honest, inside the church and outside the church, we don't trust anyone. We don't trust a single person. We don't think anybody's telling us the truth. We don't think anybody will work. We don't think we can count on anyone, but we are bound and determined for the world to trust us completely, right? That we don't fail. We're not making mistakes. Everyone should trust my opinion, but I don't trust anyone else's opinion. We are living, as the Scripture would call us, so foolishly. We are living in this kingdom of ourselves. And all of a sudden, we don't trust anybody. And the math makes complete sense. Why? Because we're not trusting God. We're barely talking to God or paying attention to God. Therefore, our internal infrastructures are falling apart. And the infrastructure of our community and the world is falling apart because we're no different than Jerusalem. We're just saying no. We're being religious. We're being political. We're being good neighbors. But we are not turning to God. We just don't do it. We won't do it. It just takes too much. If you know God, you can trust God. But, but let me raise the ante a little bit. If you know God, you will trust God. And, and the, the reverse math is the same. If you won't trust God, you don't know God. If you know God, you can trust God. If you know God, you will trust God. And if you know God, you'll remember God. And what do we need to remember about him? Well, what is it that we need to remember about God? The prophet's going to tell us. Listen, jumping down to verse 22. This is what he says. The Lord's kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Those truths cannot be changed. 
No matter what the, the doctor says, no matter the results of the election, no matter what the stock market closes as, no matter what's taken away from you, no matter what's given to you, at any moment of any day, these things cannot change. The mercies of God never end. The compassions of God never fail. Never. It can never happen. The love and mercies and compassions of God, they're brand new every morning and they were brand new five seconds ago and they'll be brand new five seconds from now. That this is who God is. This is his character. So, dear Christian, please remember this. God is faithful. God is faithful. He never fails at being faithful. And no matter what social media tells you this afternoon, no matter what you hear or see on Fox News or MSNBC or from your crazy cousin Eddie or your angry Aunt Griselda, it doesn't matter. God is faithful. God is faithful. Remember that. Everything else in your life and my life will pull us away from that truth as soon as we walk out of the doors before we walk out of the doors today. But that truth cannot change. God's love, his compassions, and his mercies, they never end and they never fail. Never. Though all hell should endeavor to shake your life, God is faithful. And he's not averagely faithful. He's not occasionally faithful. He's not ho-hum, humdrum faithful. His faithfulness is great. His mercies are great. His compassions are great. His love is great. Remember that. Remember that. Trillian Newbell says this, God doesn't do anything in his sovereign will that isn't both wise and loving. We don't trust God simply because somebody tells us to. We trust God because he is God. He is holy. He is awesome. He is righteous in every way. That's why we trust him. And then she says this, we can trust God because we don't serve a God who is only sovereign and wise. He is also infinitely loving. Look, there's some great marriages in this room. There's some fantastic parents in this room. But we are not infinitely loving. We, we aren't. We don't have it in us. God is infinitely loving. Even in and especially in his justice and his judgment, God is infinitely loving. Why? Because if God was unloving, if there were no justice of God, if there was no judgment of God, if there was no wrath of God, that means that every sinful, evil person on the planet, including us, would get away with it. But because he is loving, God sends his justice. He sends his judgment. He sends his wrath. As we've said a number of times in recent weeks, justice will be served. It will be served. It'll either be served through the cross of Jesus or it will be served in everlasting death and hell. But justice will be served. It is impossible for justice not to be served. It will happen. Remember that. Remember that truth. It may sound silly to maybe most people, but at least many people. But when we are angry, when we are afraid, 
When we are losing our minds about whatever is happening in our personal life or happening in the world, there is no greater news than this. God is on his throne. There's there's no greater news than that. Remember that. Remember that his faithfulness is great, that his mercies are great, that his compassions are great, and his love is great. Remember that, remember that, remember that. And don't just remember it. There's something else we need to do. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Not wait for and and seek for a spouse, not wait for and and seek for a child, not wait for and and seek for a a good grade on a test or a promotion at work or for your candidate to win or for the stock market to rise or or for anything else, but those are fine to wait for those things. They're, They're good to seek for those things. All of those things may happen and that'd be wonderful. But first and most, on Monday morning and Thursday afternoon and Saturday night and every other second of our life, first and most, we need to seek the Lord and wait for his salvation. What does that mean? What does that look like, waiting for the Lord? Well, it looks like every other way that we wait for people, right? I mean, when you're waiting for someone, you're you're doing something, right? I mean, if you're... You know, if your wife, if she's out shopping at Target or your husband's in, in Harbor Tools or, or, you know, your daughter's at Ulta or your son's in Cola Kicks, you know, you're going to be doing something while they're doing whatever they're doing, right? Maybe you're going to, you know, stroll through the store while they're shopping. You know, maybe you're going to scroll through social media on your phone. Maybe you're going to crush some candy on your phone. Maybe, maybe you're going to sit in your car and, and read a book or you're going to sit in your car and listen to smooth jazz or, or you're going to sit in your car and, and just impatiently pound on your watch waiting for them to come back out. Maybe you're going to run to the donut shop and get a snack or, or 12, you know. I mean, you're, you're going to find something to do while you're waiting. So what do we do while we're waiting on the Lord? Here's what we do. While we stroll, while we scroll, while we crush, while we sit, while we look, while we read, while we listen, while we do whatever we're doing, we keep recalling and we keep remembering that the mercies and compassions and love of God never fail never end. They're new every morning, and they were new five seconds before you got to that store, and they'll be new five seconds after you get to that store, because every second of every day, God's mercies and compassions are real. They do not fail. They do not end. Nothing and no one else can make that promise to you. No one. And why do you keep recalling that? Why do you keep remembering that? Here's just one reason. For at least more than 3,000 years, extremely intelligent people, people with fantastic common sense, white-collar professors, blue-collar coal miners, for more than 3,000 years, people have sought after the Lord They have waited for the Lord's salvation, and God has been faithful over and over and over again. He has proven himself to Christians over and over and over again. 
But even, even if a believer had, had everything go wrong in life, if that terrible day never disappeared and it happened over and over again, that believer would know that at the very least, ultimately, they will be saved. They could be confident that if everything goes wrong in life, they would be saved. And how would they know that? Because, folks, this isn't a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. We're not here for community favor. Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem. He was crucified and buried outside of Jerusalem. He rose from the dead so that you would know today, right now, that the salvation of God is real. Do you have that salvation? Do you have that eternal life? If you were to lay your head down on your pillow tonight, are you confident that things are right with you and God? Or are you waiting for your favorite politician to clean up the world? Are you waiting for your parents or your spouse or your pastor to make everything right? Look, we can all do a little something-something, but we are limited. But God has no limits. God has no limits. He is God, and there is no other And so we recall that, we remember that, we engage with that, but there's something else that we have to do. The poet goes on to to talk about his suffering. He makes a bunch of complaints, and then in verse 40, he says this, let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. We are all about probing everybody else's ways, right? We want reports on everything happening in every corner of the world. We want the details about everything. We deserve the truth. We think we're entitled to the truth. But as Colonel Jessup says, ain't a one of us can handle the truth. But we want it, don't we? But the poet says this, let us probe our ways. You want to change the world? You want to change your family? You want to change the country? It starts with me and it starts with you. There is no other math. It doesn't mean that there's not responsibility that all of us have in every corner of the world, but change according to the scripture begins with me and begins with you. It does not begin with us probing everyone else. The poet says, let's examine us. In other words, what he's saying is, boy, let's take our sin personally. Let's take our sin personally. Let's let our sin bother us. Because again, as we said, if we're unwilling to say we're a sinner, then we cannot be saved. Let's don't be like that. If we really want to see things different, not magically different, not perfectly different, not some weird fantasy world different, But if we would like things to be different, it begins with us. Change in our life, change in our family, change in our nation, change in the world. It begins with us taking our sin personally, owning it. It begins with us recalling, remembering, returning, and repenting. Some good R's right there. Recalling, remembering, 
Returning and repenting. Recalling and remembering the character of God. Returning to the one true God. Repenting of our sin. And being refreshed and rewarded with his presence. Because when we remember, when we return, when we repent, here's what happens. That's when we find hope. See, we we begin as we wait for the salvation of God. Oh, then it comes. And we remember it and and we embrace it. And all of a sudden, our, our hope changes. Because the hope that comes from God is not temporary hope. It's not the hope of, hey, I got a brand new car. Life is great. It's not, hey, I made an A on this test. Life is great. Hey, my team won. Life is great. No, the hope of God when your car is totaled. When you fail the test, when your team loses over and over again, nothing happens to your hope. You don't lose your mind. You don't have a meltdown because your hope is not in your car, not in your education, and not in your team. Your hope is in the God of all gods and in his son, Jesus. God is God and there is no other. And the hope that we have from him What it does is it it changes our heart and helps us to see that in Christ, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory, an eternal glory that far outweighs any trouble we'll ever have in this life. The poet goes on, he, he closes out with some images of rebellion and vengeance. And this is the last verse of Lamentations 3, verse 66. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. Not exactly Bill Shakespeare there, but it's important, okay? It's, it's important to get because what he's writing about is he is confident in God. No invading army, no, no test result, no election result, no pandemic No economic downturn. Nothing was going to be able to change this truth that the last word, the full and final and last word will never come from a president, never come from a king, never come from a queen, never come from a pastor, never come from a quarterback or anyone else that we look up to in life. The last word, the final word will come from Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ and he will say one of two things, depart from me or welcome home. That's the last word. Whatever you hear today is not the last word. Whatever happens to your team next Saturday is not the last word. Whatever happens to your family three months from now is not the last word. The last word is from Jesus. Depart or welcome home. What will he say to you? That's not a guilt trip or it's not some weird fear factor. It's just the economy of the universe. The universe created by God. The universe that will endure justice, judgment, and wrath. But there is always mercy. Always mercy. What will Jesus say to you? This is a poem about the judgment of God. This is a poem about the salvation of God. This is a poem about the wrath of God. 
And it's also a poem about the love of God. It's a poem about suffering, and it's a poem about hope. So, what do I need to do with this poem? What do you need to do with this poem? What do we do do with it? Well, we have to respond to it personally. We we have to deal with with it personally. So how do we deal with the fact that the poet began by saying, man, I'm afflicted, I'm suffering, Hard times are overwhelming my life. How do we deal with suffering, especially suffering that comes from sin? Well, someone said there's, there's two ways that we can deal with suffering. We can deny God's hand in it, or we can discern God's hand in it. So when it comes to suffering, particularly suffering from sin, we can deny God's hand in it, or we can discern God's hand in it. And if we deny God's hand, here's what will happen. Here's how the math works. If we deny God's hand, we'll get bitter. Not just bitter at God, we'll get bitter at everybody. I shouldn't tell this story, but here I am, and I'll get in trouble later. So so I'm pumping gas yesterday, (laughs) and there's just a line of cars at the stoplight in front of the gas station. And whoever the first car was wasn't going, you know. Light turned green, nobody's moving. So, you know, somebody's, you know, laying on the horn a little bit. Not that big a deal. They're just kind of laying on the horn. Well, in Dally, they kept crushing candy or whatever they were doing up there at the front of the line and, and still didn't go. And so somebody else, you know, blew their horn, you know. It's, it's not crazy, you know. It's not like a downtown New York traffic jam and everybody's screaming and yelling. It's a little horn blowing here and there. Man, there was a guy next to me at the gas station. He just couldn't take it, you know. And he's like, come on, people, what do we do? He loses his mind. And I'm thinking, dude, you aren't even physically in your car. Therefore, you're not in that traffic jam. It doesn't affect your life in any way except somebody just blew the horn. What in the world? Guys, this is the world we're living in. Let me ask you a question. Are we that person? Is that what we look like in the world? Or do we look like light? Are we light in the middle of this darkness? Or are we looking at everything saying, I don't like this, it hurts, it's awful, but I will not deny God's hand in it. Because if I do, I'm going to get bitter and I'm going to be shouting at strangers at the gas station. But if I'll discern God's hand in it, if I'll remember that God's faithful, if I remember that God's mercies and compassions never end, then I'll get better. What? That sounds crazy. If we deny God's hand, it'll make us bitter. If we discern God's hand, it'll make us better. Why? How? Here's why and here's how. Because when we discern God's hand, when we're in the darkness, when we're in the suffering, that's the only time we can truly see and embrace the light. That's it. It's the only time we can see the mercies of God. So when we take our sin personally, when we take our suffering personally, we will find the hope that will help and heal us personally. Personally. So, dear Christian, here's your hope. The mercies of God will never end. They never end. They never cease. The compassions of God will never fail. And great is his faithfulness. 
Great is God's faithfulness. Great it is His faithfulness. Great. 